You're a marketer, not a lawyer. But your organization may count on you to identify problematic advertising practices. Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Shaheen Rothermel. And I'm Lane Gordon. We're partners in Venable's Advertising and Marketing Law Group. Together, we're asking our Venable colleagues questions that are designed to help you navigate the increasingly complex world of ad law. Each week, we'll dive into a new issue, from negative option marketing to copyright protection to influencer endorsements. Our goal is to give you something to take away from each episode that will help fill your advertising law toolkit. Thank you for listening to the Venable Ad Law Toolkit Show. Hi, I'm Len Gordon, a partner at Venable and chair of the firm's advertising and marketing law group. This week, we're talking about surviving an FTC investigation. The Federal Trade Commission is investigating your company's advertising or marketing practices. Not something you ever wanted to hear, but if your organization is in the FTC's crosshairs, what's next? Well, every situation is unique and every strategy heavily fact-dependent. And that's why today we're talking to Roger Kalizi, a partner who chairs Venable's Advertising Litigation Group, and former Venable partner Alex McGarris, who, while with the firm, focused on complex regulatory investigations and government enforcement matters involving the FTC and other regulatory agencies. Roger and Alex, welcome. Hey, Len. So one of the first things I noticed about the way we've set this up is the client is hearing from the FTC with a CID. As we all know, that's sometimes not the first time you hear from the FTC. Sometimes, unfortunately, we hear when our client has been sued already and we haven't had a chance to plead our case and convince the FTC why the case shouldn't be sued or can be settled. The FTC isn't quite as active in bringing those sort of ex parte cases. But let's talk for just a second about those because I think they're important. <laughs> they're existential, really, when those kinds of cases get brought. Roger, you've handled a ton of them. What advice do you give clients when they get slapped with a, a TRO and sort of nuclear weapons that the FTC is trying to de- deploy? Well, obviously, they're going to get the uh, ex parte TRO if they go into court. It's uh, pretty easy for the FTC to convince a federal court judge to issue a TRO and hearing one side of the evidence. But I think you sit down with the client and say, all right, we've got to figure out exactly how you're operating. What's your compliance program? What documents do you have? How do we oppose a TRO? Because there will be an injunction. By right, it's within 10 days after the TRO. Typically, they get extended, but you want to be able to go in and try to stop the FTC in its tracks on the emergency litigation aspect of it. Alex, I know you've been involved in some cases where a client was pretty sure they were under investigation and affirmatively reached out to the FTC before the FTC reached out to them. It was pretty clear it was going to be on an ex parte TRO. Why do we reach out if we think our client's a target? As Roger was describing, what happens if the FTC does take ex parte action, try to get a TRO, or an asset freeze, it's pretty devastating and makes it really difficult to defend yourself. You're limited on how much you could spend on legal fees. The business oftentimes is taken over by a third-party receiver. But if you can intervene, reach out to the FTC, let them know that, one, the company is aware that it is under investigation, two, it's willing to cooperate, and three, give assurances to the FTC that assets won't be moved, et cetera, then it gives the target of the investigation time. It gives us time to figure out exactly what the FTC's 
allegations or issues are with the company's conduct, gives you time to take steps to either address it before the court is asked to shut things down. And it gives you a lot more control with respect to your defense, who defends you and what strategy you want to take with respect to that defense. So that's why you affirmatively try to reach out to the FTC if you think that you are potentially subject to a TRO or asset freeze to allow yourself to preserve options. And the way we often hear about this is from our banks or payment processors. The FTC Mm -hmm. will be sending subpoenas to companies trying to get information about your company. So if you're starting to hear those sort of murmurings, you're losing merchant accounts, things like that, you should pay attention because it could mean that the hammer might drop. So let's talk now about those situations where the FTC sends a CID. It's an interesting process because the FTC has multiple roles. Roger, can you talk about sort of the different roles that the FTC plays in the process? Frequently, people refer to it as judge, jury, and executioner, but you start with the investigation. And the FTC comes about learning from your companies by either a number of complaints. They have access to a very big complaint database where it's coming from uh, state AGs, the Better Business Bureau, directly to the FTC. They're getting consumer complaints. And they'll look at that. And when it reaches a certain level, it seems to be roughly the same level of complaints regardless of the size of the company. So it could be a couple of dozen complaints from various sources. Sometimes is enough to bring the attention to the FTC, and then they'll start an investigation. Long before you'll see a CID, and that means they're starting to get their ducks in a row. And by the time they send the CID, it'll be pretty specific about what it is they're looking at. And once that happens, you always see that the FTC will change focus as they get information from the company, and they might expand what they're investigating. They might be looking at an advertising practice and then all of a sudden see what you're doing with your clearance activity and seeing what you're doing with certain trades and what you're charging consumers, and that could expand very quickly. So you want to make sure that you know what the company has and how you might react and negotiate the CID. Now, within the FTC, which is a judge and jury part of it, what is often unnerving for companies to hear is that the FTC is presumed to know when the advertising is false or deceitful to consumers because they consider themselves experts. And when they tell a judge, as to your last question, we know when we see it and we see it from these, this company, and that's why we should have the TRO. One of the unique things about dealing with a government investigation is the FTC is your adversary, but you're also trying to convince them either that your client didn't do anything wrong or what they did is uh, parking tickets, not, you know, aggravated assault. So it's a different dynamic. Alex, what's the first thing a company needs to do when they hear from the FTC? The very first thing they need to do is reach out to experienced counsel. But the second thing is make sure that you implement a record hold. Once you're on notice that you are under investigation, you have an obligation to retain potentially relevant documentation, and that includes electronic records. And the third thing is to make contact through counsel with the lawyers that issued the civil investigative demand. And there's a meet and confer process that is built into the FTC's rules. 
that allow the parties to discuss the scope of the CID, why the FTC has issued it, and negotiate to the extent possible, reducing the burden on the company. And the obligation is on the target of the investigation, the recipient of the CID, to explain why any given request in the CID is burdensome, too broad, et cetera, in order to get the FTC to agree to any type of modification. Of course, these CIDs are are not self-executing. If a party decides to not comply for whatever reason, the FTC would have to go into court and ask a judge and force the company to comply with the CID. There is a process to also petition the FTC either to quash the CID completely or to modify it. That requires the commissioners to weigh in on it, and it makes the existence of the investigation in CID public, whereas the investigation process itself is typically confidential. And so third parties would not be notified unless and until there's a public enforcement actions the best route is to try to negotiate informally with the lawyers that are managing your specific CID to try to come up with a production schedule and a scope that works for both sides. Thanks, Alex. I've witnessed recently that the staff is less flexible on deadlines and scope of the CID. What have you guys seen? Very much less flexible than they were they often start out with, well, we need everything in two weeks. And sometimes that's good and bad. It's bad because you can't produce documents in two weeks. It's good because the staff is really getting pressure from the top. And their performance, their pay, their bonuses is all dependent on how they do in their day-to-day activities. It's also, to your last point, very difficult for the FTC to have to go and enforce a CID in court. They've got to file a complaint and they've got to open a case, which is also public. And that's bad for the client. It's bad for the FTC. So you do have some leverage with respect to that, despite the fact that the staff themselves have less flexibility. But you have to remember that at the end of the day, the staff is going to be advocating for your client when it goes up the change to convince the commissioners either to drop the case or to modify the complaint to make it less broad, whatever the case might be. It's an interesting dynamic when you're dealing with FTC staff. Very so much so. I mean, with staff, all of a sudden you guys are buddies and you're trying to figure out how they can work it up the chain. In the CID negotiations, it's almost like brinksmanship. Neither side wants to go to court to enforce the CID because it takes a long time. It's expensive. It makes the thing public. But it's really the only leverage that the party responding to it has. So you bang the table, but ultimately you end up producing something and you keep stretching things out. Roger, you mentioned that if a company gets hit with a TRO, they've got to do an initial case assessment. But that's also true with a CID, perhaps even more so because you probably have a little bit more time. Alex, you want to talk about how important that initial deep dive case assessment is? Making sure that lawyers representing the company have a good understanding of the business conduct that's being looked at, potential weaknesses and blind spots is really important to properly defend the case 
both in the investigation stage and, and you hope you can resolve whatever it is that the FTC thinks is happening without going to court. But in the event that there's litigation, you also want to be ahead of the game. The worst thing is when the FTC lawyers know more about my client's business than I do. That puts us at a disadvantage. And the best way to defend yourself is to have your lawyers do a deep dive, which requires you to give them access to personnel, management, IT folks, their documents, email, and chats, which is you know disruptive, of course. But at the end of the day, if the government's going to be asking for that same access, you certainly want your counsel armed with all the information to help navigate you through the process. One of the issues I see <laughs> clients wrestling with is who do they tell? Who at the company knows or gets to know about the investigation? H- how do you deal with that, Roger? Well, I mean, it obviously depends on the size of the company and what the company has in place in terms of its operations, typically both with maintaining documents as well as providing information. It's usually the at least the C-suite of folks at the company and then those people who can really help provide the information. There's obviously no need to tell everyone. And it's important to note, of course, these CIDs are confidential they're not public unless they become public because you're moving to quash or because a complaint is ultimately filed. But it's more disruptive to try to inform the whole company. And it's like any other business issue that comes along. You, tell, you talk to the people who can help resolve that issue. And I, I know companies typically look at it as a business issue. It is a legal issue because of how the law operates, but for them it's a business issue and they would handle it the same way they would any other important issue, whether it's a class action or state AG complaint or whatever. So that initial investigation that Alex was talking about, that's perhaps one of the most important events in the case because when we're doing our job well, we figure out early where this case is likely to resolve. Obviously, our first line of defense is there's no case here. It ought to be closed. But then if it's going to have to settle, we want it to settle on the best terms we can. And one of the ways we get there is by, you know, advocating to the FTC really from day one. But if we're constantly telling the FTC something and then they're showing us that we're wrong, it makes it much harder to resolve it. And the three of us, we trade on the, the FTC on our credibility, that we know what we're talking about. We've been through a lot of cases. We know what we're doing. So I think there's a reluctance sometimes for clients to show us everything, but it's really in their interest for us to know everything because our advice is only as good as the facts upon which it's based. And if they're not telling us the bad stuff, we're not giving them very good advice. I mean, what's your experience there, Roger? You're 100% right. And the FTC, of course, has done a ton of investigation using the people and the tools that they have, and they'll do secret shopper type of sales, and they'll know a lot about what you're doing before they even ask for information. So if we're able to have that information, two things happen. One is we're better positioned, as you point out. Two, when we provide information to the FTC in response to the civil investigative demand, we're advocating and we're saying, here is this information that you asked for. You'll note that 
this is how the company operates, and you'll see how they follow the compliance program that they're engaged in. And you're able to start putting hurdles up for the FTC to have to jump over to get further along because you're, in effect, already responding to what you know is going to be the complaint. And that's having experienced counsel, being able to know exactly where the case is likely to go and start defending that from the beginning, from the very first conversation with FTC staff. It helps tremendously to put the company in a position to get a good result, whether that is to make the whole thing go away or to have minor changes or to work with the FTC in a way that is helpful for the FTC. And their mission, of course, is to try to use these investigations to instruct others in the same field, but also will help the company to know exactly what the FTC is thinking about their particular type of business model. Alex, what do you advise clients about changing their business practice? So whether it's the way that a disclosure is offered and the FTC is focused on that, you take a look at it with the client, you have some concerns, do you change it in the middle of the investigation or do you sort of tough it out? It's not a one-size-fits-all, but there is a tension there. If you make what could be seen as corrective changes, it could be seen as some sort of admission or concession that the original practice was not fully compliant with the law. And in some cases, that's true, right? When we talk about the FTC, it enforces an array of statutes and regulations, some of which, when you think about it on a spectrum, are highly technical. And on the other side of the spectrum, we're talking about unfair or deceptive acts and practices, which leaves a lot of room for future interpretation and evolution. So this is where the early case assessment is really important. If you're identified practices that, for whatever reason, inadvertently are technically not complying with a statute or regulation, that should be remediated as soon as possible. And you can always then try to use that willingness to affirmatively and proactively better your practices to try to create some favor in the negotiation process. On the other hand, where it becomes a little bit more gray, and if your practices are consistent with the industry generally, it appears that the FTC is trying to push the envelope and create new, different heightened standards, and that happens a lot, then maybe there'd be a reason to hold pat until you're closer to resolving the issue because you can use it as something to trade during settlement talks. But it's not easy because sometimes these negotiations drag on. You've already seen a draft of the settlement document with the injunctive provisions that the FTC wants. So you have a sense, like the blueprint of what they want you to do. But then you're in limbo as to whether or not you should wait to sign the document before you make these changes or hold out because that's kind of the leverage you have. I mean, it really is case specific. And that's the best advice I can give is that you really need to do an early case assessment to understand where on that spectrum the conduct falls. It is very case specific. And sometimes where you look and say the FTC has carved out, as Alex pointed out, trying to push the envelope as to what complies with, say, something like ROSCA, right, Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act, as it relates to auto renewal. It may not make a difference to the client. Oftentimes they do A-B testing to see what if we had a box they had to check or what if we had to do it in a particular way. 
And oftentimes you can use tools that are typically used in litigation, like a consumer perception survey. You do a survey, it comes out in your favor as you expect the consumer understands exactly what is going to happen. You provide that to the FTC and say, you're not going to be able to prove your case. Here's a consumer perception survey done well. But we're willing to make some of these changes, and you might actually make those changes. And it allows the company and you acting on behalf of the company to put them in a position where the FTC might consider, depending on what other issues there are, closing down the investigation based upon what you've demonstrated to them. Because it's not in their interest to fight over whether something is literally compliant with the law, but they really would like to extend it a different way. That's a great point. Roger, you mentioned mission creep. Where I'm seeing it a lot is with data, where you know it's a false advertising case, and then all of a sudden they want to know how the company's using data, how it's monetizing consumer data. Had nothing to do with the original investigation. What kinds of things have you seen as far as this mission creep at the FTC? It's almost like, well, we've invested something into this with our investigation and now our CID. We shouldn't let it go. What else can we focus on? And whether they're getting data from their CID and then looking at it, but often it might be they specifically request, hey, we want to see your any A-B testing you've done to see if you've made decisions that are more onerous on the consumers or deceitful to consumers based on the ROI of your A or B test. And it's almost like a no-win situation once they've got their claws into you. They don't want to let go. And while you're able to eliminate some issues, they're looking for the next one, right? And now with their dark patterns, they're always going to say, well, you don't really need to have a sales funnel that's that long. It's necessarily deceptive to consumers because we think it's too long. And we're the experts here in advertising or a particular way that a product is offered. To more directly answer your question, I've seen it in every single FTC investigation. Let's expand it. Alex, what are you seeing? As I think everyone listening probably knows, the FTC collects and maintains a database of consumer complaints, from draws from many different sources, and that is a driver for the FTC in terms of when it decides to open an investigation. When there's an ongoing investigation against a company, it's obviously the staff lawyers are getting the updates on complaints that are being submitted about that company. And I've been in situations where the investigation as a result of customer complaints started on one specific practice, like fulfillment and delivery issues. And because it went on for 12, 16 months, staff was starting to see a morphing of customer complaints to things relating to how online reviews were being used. Very different topic, but because of the active investigation dots were being connected, and before you knew it, we're dealing with a second CID. And so once they've opened an investigation, there's lots of different data points from which they can draw, which oftentimes leads to an expansion of the original scope. We've only got a few minutes left, so let me ask you guys questions that we get a lot from clients. Can't we just sue the FTC to have a judge decide we haven't done anything wrong? Can I go over the head of staff and just talk to somebody who can really make a decision? And can I go to Capitol Hill? What's your experience with those things, Roger? You can't really sue the FTC. You can try. 
It's been done in the past, and if you think that they've got their claws in you now, just wait after you try to go after them. But if you're trying to resolve it, you really want to resolve it in a way you might a private litigation. Now, very different thing, private litigation versus the FTC. They have unlimited funds. There's not much you can go after them for in a counterclaim, for example. But when you want to go over the heads of the staff, you never do actually go over their heads without them knowing about it. You tell them you're going to go up the chain. And we have, in all the cases we've done, hundreds maybe, over the years, we do that on a regular basis because in order to ultimately resolve a case, you have to go up the chain. You will hear from the advising attorneys to the commissioners on their own or in connection with staff. Going to the Hill, you could do that as viewed as you might expect it would be viewed, that you're trying to negotiate through pressure on the FTC, and that doesn't work. So if you're challenging a constitutional issue, sort of the way the administrative process works, you might have a leg to stand on. But if you're just saying what we do does not violate the law, you're just not going to get a declaratory judgment on that. There's basic procedural hurdles that you just can't get over. And the Hill, it's got to, I think, be an industry issue. that They are trying to fundamentally yep. change something in the economy, not just we don't feel like we're being treated fairly. You know, the folks on the Hill have to be very, very careful because this is a law enforcement matter. And intervening in a law enforcement matter can expose the folks on the Hill to a lot of issues. Alex, any concluding thoughts as we start to wrap up? Please monitor your complaints and address them do analysis to see if there's a systemic issue or problem that can be fixed, because that is the number one reason you would find yourself facing the FTC. Once you know, you're know you already in front of them, be proactive in advocating your position and not just reactive in terms of just responding. Unlike litigation, when you're in investigation, it's, it's a one-way street in terms of discovery. They ask the questions and you send them the information and documents, but you can be proactive and shape the narrative and the FTC, especially staff's understanding of the facts. And it would be a mistake to wait until after they've made up their mind to do that. Roger, any last thoughts? Yeah, there's a way to try to avoid getting a CID in the first place. And that is to, as Alex said, get competent counsel who understand what is required with respect to your particular business and how it operates. And that is the way to avoid it in the first place. And if you have compliance programs in place or very detailed, specific to your company, how to comply with the law and know what the FTC and state AGs and others are looking at in terms of advertising and consumers, you can avoid most issues. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you to Roger Kalizi and Alex McGarris for their tips on surviving an FTC investigation. You can read more from Roger and Alex on this topic in our Advertising Law Toolkit. It's available at venable.com slash adlawtoolkit. You can also stay up to date on FTC and other developments by following our allaboutadvertisinglaw.com blog. Please join us next week when my co-host Shaheen Rothermel talks to our Venable colleague Dan Silverman about mitigating class action exposure. I'm Len Gordon. Thank you for listening to the Venable Ad Law Toolkit Show.